Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. We are kicking off the first episode of the fourth season today with Rob Duhart. We are honored to have him on the show. Rob has a long history in cybersecurity. He has done an extensive amount of work at the Department of Energy with the FBI. He was with Ford Motor Company's Red Team. Uh, and now heads up uh, Federated Security for Google. It's an honor to have him on the show. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining us today. So glad to be here. Thank you, Manoj. Honored to be here. Uh, you know, you have such a great background and um, such great experiences. It's kind of, we want to talk about so many things, but we just have a short period of time. So, uh, you know, guide us to the more important things, if you will, if we go astray. I'd, I'd bore everyone anyway, right? Uh, uh, my joke though is is that uh, the journey has been fun to recap, uh, maybe even more fun to recap than it was to live. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, so you talk about formative experiences. Uh, when I was at the FBI, um, we were working national security investigations, right? And so you hear a lot in the news about APTs today, right? Advanced yes. Persistent Threat. Right. And uh, my joke was, was that when I was at the Bureau, without revealing too much information, it, it, it was almost like people watching APTs. Really? Like, imagine you're at the mall, right? And you're, it's Christmas time, and everyone's out last minute shopping. My father used to love to, to, to do uh, Christmas Eve people watching, because you get to see the best and the worst in people, right? You get to see the, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, and, and I, I look back on those national security cyber days and that's what it felt like often. Um, particularly when you talk about like, you know, APTs, what we now call APTs, they weren't called that then, uh, back then they were threat actors and a bunch of different threat, uh, names that you could find on, on Wikipedia, uh, that I can't really speak Just out of curiosity, who, uh, did you see, was there a specific geography region, uh, <laughs> identifying group of people that... That like to play the bad guys. I mean, who is the who is the best or who who is the most frequent? <laughs> both, both. <laughs> if they're not um, the same, both. <laughs> there's there's a, a a billion person country, uh, in oh, okay. East Asia that, at the time was was still developing their programs. Right, they they were still pretty nascent. Um, and that, that was a fascinating experience because you could see things like their shift changes, right? You could see like the shift between their A team and their B team. You could see like when the guy who taught everybody, right? Like the, the, the rock star was doing his thing. And, and yeah. then you could see the flunky, right? Like, oh, he missed a, a period there. Oh, he missed a, 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 a hash mark there, or, you know. Um, <laughs> it was, it was hilarious being able to compare the A students to the B students. Um, the ones that we rarely saw, but the ones that were really interesting, um, were, were more, uh, central, central Europe. Um, right. You Those can, guys you were can, doing their homework. I, I think we call them fancy bear now. Uh, I think that's what they're okay, referred to as. That's who they're, they refer um, to as. And, but not those specific actors. I'm not speaking about them in particular, but just that's that's what I think uh, industry refers to them as. It was fascinating. They were so very let good. Me ask, let me ask you this. What what inspired you to get into cybersecurity? Yeah, this is a great question. I've been talking to some Googlers about this too. Um, Manoj, do you have kids? Yes, I do. I have three children. Okay, so I was I was an only child, and it's for the reason I just gave you. Oh, I'm about to give you. I, I was the kid that broke everything. I was okay. the kid that, you know, you know, this is aging me a bit, but you know, everyone had a record player. <laughs> and you I was had the kid, a real vinyl record player. My family did, right? You know. Okay. Um, and this is a funny story about my uncles. My uncles had record players, right? And their joke is to this day, I'm gonna send him this podcast. He tells the story of how I showed up at his house and they told my parents, he can do everything but touch these things. And of course, I found my way to those things. And let's sure. just say they never worked the same again. <laughs> so my joke is I've been hacking things and breaking things 
for a very long time. And in our industry, I like to say there's builders and then there's breakers. And I started my career as a breaker, not a builder. And without understanding how a breaker works, you really can't be a great builder. So. Absolutely. Uh, and to this day, like I never studied software engineering. Uh, I've always been more of a reverse engineer. Wow. If that makes sense. It makes complete sense. So, you know, we see, um, you know, a part of our, our mission is to try and help a lot of young people. At Dark Rhino, we, we're involved with a lot of programs uh, with, with folks who are in disadvantaged situations. Uh, and cybersecurity we see as a great avenue to help them because, A, we do have a tilted supply-demand curve in our industry, which is a good we thing. Do. While I don't know how long it will last, but while it is there, uh, it is an opportunity for a young person to get into something at the ground level and advance rather quickly if they are willing to, to develop the skills. But how, what do you think we could do to inspire more young people to have that sense of wonder, which is the one thing that hmm. – I, I, if I was to look at the kids who really uh, embrace and say, we're going to do something, they have a sense of wonder about the world. Uh, and they do go into those STEM careers. Hmm. What do you, what are you, what's your thoughts on that to, to guide some of these folk, the young folks and maybe it's inspire them to question. do? Yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a great question. And I'm, I'm trying to synthesize pretty, pre pretty simply at Google, we call it TLDRing. Um, TLDR, right? Three things. One is, I think our, our education system sometimes categorizes people by how well they fit into a mold. And some of the best and the brightest in our industry never fit the mold. When I used to work uh, with uh, the National Security Agency, uh, NSA, in Maryland, every once in a while you'd be on the elevator and this, this little kid would walk in. And you'd okay. think it's like, is this, is this bring your kid to work day, right? You're like, where's the parents? <laughs> where's the you know, bring your kid to work day badge? But they are what's called co-ops. And NSA is pretty famous at this. They have a co-op program where they bring in middle school and high school students to work in some of the most intense jobs at the agency that have these supreme gifts. Like I've seen some of these co-ops do some of the most amazing cryptography type work I've ever seen done. And it's because they, the, the, the National Security Agency is committed to finding their geniuses, which is my point too. Finding the genius. Go ahead. I, I did not think that a federal agency would operate like that because to me it seems like to get into the NSA, uh, especially at at certain levels, they're, they're, forget the political aspects of it, but there is a very traditional route to take. And what you're describing is absolutely something orthogonal to that, which is great. It, if they're um, taking that approach – that is the way to do it, you know, to, to find people who are inspired at a very young age. May when have Minoj, a, a part of it just comes from necessity, right? So uh, you, I'd be lying if I didn't say half of these co-ops are, are local people, right? So they're local to the, the Baltimore, D.C. area. Um, but in, in, in the business that they are in, their need for geniuses to solve some of the hardest problems in unconventional ways is so great that they have to almost do that, right? Um, and, you know, um, John Nash, good example, right? Your genius rarely looks the way you expect them to look. Alan Turing, right? You think, go back to yeah. GCHQ in, in London and in, in the UK. Oftentimes, your geniuses don't look the way you expect. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go to Grace Hopper and let's go yeah. to the women who really innovated the, the, the cryptography industry, cryptology industry. These are brilliant, amazing human beings that don't fit the stereotype that you and I are used to seeing. How do they fit into a, a bureaucratic organization? Do, does that stifle their genius or are, how does an agency manage that? This is a great, this is another great question. It's a lesson I think for industry. And it's something I think Google does a fantastic job of not to, 
bring employer in too much, but um, you don't mold you don't mold the person to the system. You mold the system to the person, right? So like Mark Zuckerberg, if you have a Mark Zuckerberg with you, or you have somebody who's clearly gifted, you don't constrain them with a system that limits their ability to contribute. And so what you would find, uh, the, the co-ops I'm talking about, they had Hello Kitty backpacks. They were wearing, you know, LA light shoes. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but they did not come to, to, to the agency uh, looking like agency people. Like the agency came to them, if that's the right word. And I think most of us in, in industry, right, would benefit from doing the same. Like, don't, don't try to bring Ford Motor Company or Google or, or any of these organizations to these people. Bring them to you and give them the space they need to be to do what they are and be who they are. You know, uh, Rob, that, I think that's a, a supreme challenge. I mean, that is a polar opposite to how companies have traditionally worked, right? Yeah. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense because I, I spent a lot of time in the Far East. We used to live over in Japan. Um, ah. Some time. Yeah, we, we were there for quite for a little bit of time. Absolutely. And when we see now, when I say, uh, it, I'm going to say pick on Asians as a whole. So Indians, uh, Pakistanis, Koreans, uh, Chinese, Asians. So we're all part of Asia. All right. Um, and I think the Asian culture, it's very hierarchical in nature. It, it just is. You know, you have thousands of years of human history mm -hmm. uh, that it evolved from. And I think those folks get constrained. And when you see those folks leave the, their countries, their homelands, and they come to the United States, they f began and found some of the greatest companies in the United States, right? I mean, they're, they become highly successful. And it's just what you're saying, you know, you, you because that environment's trying to mold them to the environment, they come here, they have an opportunity to be themselves. And potentially in a form, in, in their truest form, right? In and, their and truest it unleashes form. and unlocks. But one thing America I found, and this, I don't think this is controversial, we are good at welcoming, I think, I'd like to believe we're good at welcoming folks external in to innovate. But something we struggle with sometimes is inside, right? So when I was at Ford, you know, they had an incredible program where they had what's what are called Ford Resource Centers, FREX, okay. in certain inner city parts of Detroit. And these are the Ford Foundation. They supported it, right? The name Ford is, is on the door and they buy laptops. They buy um, all these kinds of resources and they bring them to these neighborhoods to invest in the community, right? Because quite frankly, right. these are the communities where some, some of their employees work, some of their customers are, right? These, they're investing in the community and, and give them lots of, lots of credit for that. We would sometimes bring our apparatus to those centers and we would hack from the center, right? And we'd do it when there were high schoolers and middle schoolers around and they would watch us. We'd bring laptops and they could try it, right? And it wasn't so much that we were instructing them, it was more so we were just being with them. And so in many ways, we're doing, exemplifying what you described. Instead of expecting them to come to us, we came to them. Yeah. I think Google does this decently well too. So, but it's, I, I think that's an area where America, we're missing some of our geniuses because we don't go to where they are and we don't bring it to them. We expect them to come to us. You know, you're right. Uh... But at the end of the day, I think the United States is probably the only country where you can still do this. So I, good point. when I good look point. at our, our, our greatest strength is our ability to innovate. That's true. Right. right? It's not our ability to make widgets per se. Um, there's always someone that can be a fast follower. There's always yes. someone that's going to be the cheapest in the business world. But the person who innovates is always going to be on top. And I think that's the strength. If we ever lose that uh, fabric, then then I would say we're in trouble from the Far East or any other uh, country. But I don't see it, and it's not because their people 
overseas are not intelligent. They are bright. They are so sharp. Brilliant. It's just there. There, and the environment doesn't foster. It doesn't provide that incubation to create. When and you know, look, I I I, I hear where you're going, and and as a as a tech company guy, I, I have to say yes, I do believe. We, 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 there's an innovation that happens here that's just incredible. But I also love how cyber is like the great equalizer, right? Like I, I remember yeah. we back when botnets were a thing, right? Yeah. Uh, I was a part of an operation to, to kind of take down what was called the Mega D botnet. Okay, um, I never heard of it. By, but... Yeah, yeah, it was run by a bot herder whose name I won't, you know, uh, you can Wikipedia it, but Okay. He was from, uh, I believe it was Ukraine, either that or Russia, one of the two. But he, he wasn't like a Moscow guy, right? He was he was more kind of a backwoodsy, kind of scrappy guy. But at some point, his botnet was responsible for like 60% of the spam that was happening. I think he was making somewhere like seventy to $80,000 a week sending spam. Be... Oh, man. And, it, and yeah, like, I mean, how many industries exist where, you know, you can be in the middle of the Ukraine or wherever you may be, Nigeria, whatever. Um, and, and, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can do something like that. And the beauty is our industry has caught on to that. That's where HackerOne, Bug Bounty, like all of these Bug Bounty programs, Crowd, uh, um, gosh, I'm butchering the name. Uh, oh, there's one that's really on the tip of my tongue other than HackerOne, but, um, Bug Bounty has enabled so many across the world to leverage that skill and that democracy of cyber to improve their lives. And it's incredible. But, but think about that. So that guy who's in the backwoods Legally. of Ukraine. Yeah. Oh, wait, <laughs> yeah, we back... arrested that guy. <laughs> oh, you we got him. That guy. Oh, we got I, I that thought, guy. I thought he oh, was no. in a non-extradite country. Oh, no, no, no. Wait, so the story gets even better. I don't know how much you want me to get into the story, but uh, no, well, no, he you was You started it. Now give us a little bit of the... <laughs> so I, I wish I could take claim for this. I actually think I was in D.C. when this happened, um, but I, I was on the case. I, we, we got him to Las Vegas, and we arrested oh. him in Las Vegas. And I won't reveal the, how we got him to Las Vegas, but he went oh, to Las no. Vegas on his own. And uh, then, you know... Knock, yeah, knock, knock at, at Caesar's Palace, and he was extradited to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, ah, well, that wasn't very challenging then, but oh, human greed, greed always gets you, man. It's a, the basic uh, human uh, tendencies are the biggest gap, even in cyber, to overcome that are proving to be very difficult. He was at a supercar conference trying to spend that $70,000 a week. Shouldn't have. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, who was the gentleman that was just arrested in uh, the Middle East? He was uh, from Kenya or Nigeria. I can't remember. I, I'm drawing a blank right now. I, he, I am too. I know what you're talking about, but I'm drawing a blank. He was the greatest, he, he, the biggest fortune ever amassed from cyber crimes, right? 400 some odd million dollars. It's a big money industry. But I, what, you know, what, what worth mentioning though is that. I love how we've been able to even somewhat pivot this, right? I've heard so many amazing stories of folks in Brazil and other parts of the world using bug bounty, right? Using legal abilities to work with companies to coordinatedly disclose findings and, and support their families. It's, it's incredible. Um, it's, it kind of flips that narrative of cybers for bad guys uh, on its head. Oh, that that's great. And I'm glad to hear uh, firsthand that those uh, kinds of programs have a very positive outcome because uh, the perception uh, and is yeah. that, you know, if I find a really nice vulnerability that's juicy, why do I want to disclose it? I might want to take advantage of this thing <laughs> and, and, and monetize it. But uh, if that's in fact, those programs are proving out to be successful, that's good for everybody. Yes, like, and I remember the name of the company now, Bug Crowd, great company. Um, look, I think if you're playing the short game, and and you you want to be an arms dealer, yeah, that's out there. <laughs> if you want to be a Victor Boot, yeah, you can be a Victor Boot of cyber. Um, but if you're playing the long game, right, and and you want to be a good cyber citizen, there's tons of opportunities. Whether at a company like at Google, right, we're hiring. Uh, please, you know, talk to us. 
um, or you know through Bug Bounty as an independent contractor, right, or as as a, a, a crowdsourced employee, there's opportunities there to do the right thing and to support the community. I remember when a black hat was a bad thing, right, and it still sometimes has negative connotations. Um, but I see more white hats and gray hats these days, right? And I, I like the fact that people are starting to embrace the fact that hacker doesn't mean criminal. Uh, the, and Black Hat is a great conference, by the way. Have you been? Yeah, Black Hat is a fantastic conference. Yes, many times, <laughs> many times. Yeah. Although I'm probably more of a DEF CON guy, if I'm honest. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. That's just because, you know, I like to be the, the Fed in the find the Fed game at, at DEF CON. Uh, now, you mentioned... You mentioned hiring at Google, uh, but there's this um, perception that you know Google, Microsoft, Facebook only hire the elite. You know that's mm. that's it. Mm. So, if you are looking to make a career in cyber, mm. do you have any hopes of getting into organizations like that, or must you come from schools like Carnegie Mellon or MIT and? <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I would, I'd say look at my look at my broken uh, fire uh, alarm and my scruffy beard <laughs> and my hoodie. I don't I don't feel super elite today. Um, that's a you know it's a joke, but yeah, I think cyber more than anything is an industry that is driven by hard work tenacity um, and and being self-driven. And I think a lot of folks are interested in almost the get elite quick model. And I'm not, I'm not talking poorly about certifications. I'm not talking poorly about getting a master's degree in cyber, I'm not talking poorly about it, but overwhelmingly both at Google and at other places, the best in cyber that I've ever worked with are self-educated, some of them don't have college degrees. Some of them, you know, wouldn't step foot on a university campus, but they're brilliant. And they just happen to stumble into what they're passionate about. They love this. They would do it for free. They won't, because why, why would you? But yeah. they would, because they love it, if that makes sense. So to everyone listening, I'd say, if you're passionate about this, if you want to learn this, there are paths to do this through YouTube. There's ways that you can get good at this through lots of different platforms. You don't have to go to Harvard. You don't have to go to MIT or, or Carnegie Mellon, although I'm a Carnegie Mellon grad, so shout out to Carnegie Mellon. Um, you don't have to do that to be successful and to get to this level. Well, then then you're familiar with the Pittsburgh region, so there's going to be a lot yeah. of kids here. Um, we're gonna. I'm actually going to take that little snippet. Thank you for saying that because there's a, a lot of – Folks in high schools, I think a lot of kids in high schools need to hear that. They need to hear it from someone who's done it. Yes. Uh, that that is, in fact, the case. The only thing yes. I would ask, uh, ask is why uh, – how do you get that across in a resume, though, right? I mean, when you're going in, your resume, how does it depict hard work, you know, passion, great knowledge – Unless you've been in the front page for some nefarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, right. You, you, yeah, hack, you yeah. hack the government and then they put you in jail, then they hire you afterwards, right? Or whatever. Right. It's a, it's a trope. Um, yeah. Like I'd say, if I wanted to be controversial, I'd say the resume is dead. <laughs> if I wanted to be <laughs> controversial. Um, I can't remember the last time I hired somebody because of the resume. Um, overwhelmingly, I think it's about re re relationship. And it's about... And um, you know, um, having, I think, I think it's about taking advantage of opportunities to build relationships with people. Like I wish LinkedIn existed when I started in this world, a, cause I would have used it for social engineering, but B <laughs> it makes it so easy to reach out to some of these leaders and just say, Hey, my name is Rob. I'm 17 years old. I'm from Washington, D.C., not the good side. Um, I don't have the best academic background. I maybe don't have the best bona fides, but I'm passionate about this. I learned to do this at the library. I want to learn more. What should I do? And I guarantee you that message will get delivered and responded to from a person like me or, or even above me. I can tell you that um, at Dark Rhino, if we 
we've actually I can think of two instances where we did get a notice like that from from people and we hired both people Google is famous for this like they have so, ways of um, like like hiring like they have a system by which if you put in a certain query or you're doing some type of search on Google on our search engine it can it routes you to a potential job application based upon what you've done right like there's this has happened before there there's creative you guys have an unfair that. advantage you guys are google so you this can do whatever you want this so <laughs> this is true this is true this is true I, I won't i won't disagree with that but to your point some of the best hires are the unconventional hires that's it like yes some of the best googlers i've ever worked with right have started as at apple genius bars right or like you know and they worked their way up Right, they found right. a path. I'm trying to think, there. You know, Apple Genius is so funny. You mentioned it. I, I there's four people that uh, at DRS, that Dark Rhino, that came that route. There you go. And they, they there are. You yeah, you're right. We're looking for that. Uh, we do a lot of work with the military, actually. You know, for being a small there's company and one. not having, um, you know, we don't have that brand name yet. I, I should say, as, as certainly it's not coming. like what a micro, Microsoft or a Google, but. For us, that relationship, word of mouth, everything that you have said is absolutely correct. And it's uh, really important for an industry leader like you guys. If when you make a statement like that, I think young people will listen and that betters their lives potentially. And that's valuable. That makes Manoj, your point is so well taken and well received. It's a fearlessness. Don't be afraid. Like, don't be intimidated. Reach out, have a conversation. We all started someplace. I had a mentor. I still have mentors, right? I have a guy in, in DC I call my sensei. And he and I message all the time. And, and he saw something in me when others maybe didn't. Uh, and it's, it's happened throughout my career. And so uh, my encouragement to these young people are just keep trying. You have time and opportunity. It's priceless. So let's switch direction a little bit to cybersecurity itself. Um, of course. Do you think companies understand that cybersecurity is a business problem and not necessarily an IT problem? You know, I got to ask this. I ask this of everyone that comes on the show, by the way, because I, I'm passionate about the answer on this one. But I, I am too. And I think, you, you know, we're going to align on my answer. Um, <laughs> look, when, when, when your board of directors is being sued, because of a breach yeah or your ceo or your whole c-suite is now potentially um being vacated because of an embarrassing breach when you know i think it's been proven that shareholder value actually rebounds after a breach which is really strange but like significant incidents have 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 had impacts on business leaders i think it's clear that security and cybersecurity in particular is not an IT problem, right? If you're if you are saying that your IT guys are going to solve this problem, you're missing the boat. Security is a business enabler and a revenue um, multiplier. That and what is I, key. And, and what I mean by that is is just we we talked about this once before. Brakes on race cars do not mean that they're slow. The better your brakes on an F1 car, better your brakes on better your ability to stop an airplane, the faster you go. The SR-71, one of the greatest feats of engineering by, you know, uh, Lockheed Martin and the CIA, had a remarkable ability to stop. You, you can't fly at supersonic speeds if you cannot stop that hunk of metal that's flying at supersonic speeds. And I think cybersecurity is the same way. I would agree with that. And I love that analogy because I can think cars, I, I'm a car guy and, and I, and I get it, you know, going into a corner at high speed, you better have good brakes. Cause if you want to delay braking, you better be pretty sure you're going to be able to delay braking or you're going to become part of the landscape, um, which is not a good And thing. I'd say one, I'd say one more thing. Like it's so easy to think security is technical because it is. Um, but in many ways, I think security problems in large companies like a Google, it's, it's less of a technical problem. We have all the geniuses we need technically. It's, it's organizational, it's process, it's 
it's um, um, visibility, it's maturity, right? I lead an organization called Federal Federated Security. And what we do is we work with senior business leaders to equip and empower them to manage and own their own security risk. And, and it's not building tools. I'm not handing them a toolkit. No, no, no. I'm partnering with them and advising them on their journey. Our team is. See, and, and that's fantastic. Are, and they, uh, have you encountered any resistance with that? Or are they all very open? They love, they embrace you with open arms in, the, in that approach. I think we as security people are partially responsible for the challenges we have with the business sometimes, right? Because yeah. we're technical people. We're naturally paranoid. <laughs> and, and we speak in words that don't necessarily make dollars and cents to our business leaders. So I'd, I'd say overwhelmingly, when I build a relationship with a leader, one, two, when I communicate that what matters to them and to their bottom line and to the success of their business, when I communicate to them that their business drivers matter to me, two, and then three, when I translate complex technical concepts into easy, actionable, implementable plans and strategies and roadmaps, they're happy. Right, because they know it's a problem. Deep down, they know but it's a problem. But now you know business. You know business. Then that's uh, so you've merged two things together uh, that is uh, not so trivial to do. Understanding how the business operates, and then crafting security to enable that, and using yes. that as a monetizer for the business, and not as a detractor or, as you use the analogy, as a break. Uh, it's not a break. It's actually going to allow them much faster. It's going to accelerate. That's right. That's right. And think about this, Manoj, and you know this, we're, we're, our industry's 30 years old, max, okay. right? There are debates over when the first CISO was created. I've heard 95, sure. I've heard 93. Uh, one of my good buddies, Tony Spinelli, a great mentor, you know, I think he has stakes on one of those roles. We're young. And so the best in our business are starting to, to step away and, and, and move on to the best years of their lives. And and I think it's now up to many of us to step in and, and to advance the craft to what you're describing. Yes, we need technicians and yes, we need technical people to do amazing things, but we also need leaders to be able to speak tech to business people and in business language. Absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree with that more. When you are looking to advise business leaders on risk, how, how do you help them understand cyber risk? Is there, do you follow a framework like FAIR or NIST or something? <laughs> or are, how do you, I've rung them up on purpose, but you know, what is, what is the approach to establish that common vernacular, if you will, so that they understand? The, the FAIR team is amazing. Um, CMMMI is amazing uh, from SCI right. at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. Uh, again, another shout out to my alma mater. Um, <laughs> I think you have to develop unique approaches for every business. So let's talk about Google for a second, right? I don't want to go too deep, um, you know, because these are my views, not my employers. But uh, the difference between building a security maturity strategy and roadmap for Android and for Google Maps, it's like night and day, right? Um, I guess those are actually a little bit closer than you might think, right? Because there's a Google Maps app on Android. But the point is, is that you have to build, when you're quantifying risk, you have to adapt the methodology to the industry and the vertical that you're working in. And so when I was in, in, a, in a healthcare company, right, we thought a lot about health records and HIPAA and regulations and, right. you know, how do we quantify the value of health data? Believe it or not, Manoj, credit card numbers are worth cents on the dollar. Right? Yeah. Well, our, your medical records are worth uh, 25 bucks or so. <laughs> I mean, some would even say they're worth hundreds of dollars, right? Because I can change your credit card, Manoj, but I cannot change your blood type. That's correct. Like, I could change your bank account number, but I cannot change your mother's maiden name, right? Health records are a treasure trove of valuable data for bad people, and it never changes. <laughs> it's constant. And so the point is, is that the quantification of risk has to take likelihood and impact in, into account right likelihood and right. impact right how likely is it going to happen and if it does happen what you know what does that impact um, but i think there's a couple of other layers we also have to consider um which is regulatory impact which is um what i've heard referred to my previous boss Lori havlovitz we talk about the crown jewels right so what is 
most important to your in, your organization and what what will differentiate your ability to make revenue so Manoj, right so i'd ask you yeah. if you're my if you're if i'm if i'm quantifying risk for you i'd say Manoj, at dark rhino what can't you what can your ability to make revenue not survive for longer than one day what capability is that if our services ever went offline there you go. So your services are your crown jewels. And so if yes, you can identify what matters the most to you and then quantify your risk around that and then start your security program around that, it makes a significant difference. I'd say the other piece is if once you identify your crown jewels, the other question is how exposed are they and who has access to them? Is it a malicious Absolutely. insider? Is it an outsider? Right. And then using that to frame as well. Go ahead. No, you're you're absolutely right. And uh, it, it was, in fact, with a view to that, that we, we built ours. We, we wanted to have certain redundancies and certain complexities in the architecture that really caused isolation. So even if there was a compromise of some small portion, it was very limited in scope. It couldn't become systemic overall. Limiting the blast I, I, radius. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think a lot of companies would look at it that way. And what, you know, our clients, most of them are small, medium businesses. So companies that, not the Googles of the world, but 2,000 employees and below. And, and, and in that space, I, you know, we've been advocates of, yeah, you can use a framework, but what we like to start the conversation with is exactly with what you did. What are your crown jewels? Define that and define the monetization of that. And how are we going to protect that? And that will lead to your risk scoring pretty quickly anyways, right? Because the alternative is, I'm sorry, I was going to say the alternative is we've seen a lot of companies in our segment, they, they think it's so complex that they don't go through the exercise and they just say, well, we just want endpoint protection. Well, why do you need that? What are you going to do with it? <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I'm being a little sarcastic there, but the no, quick question, <laughs> yeah. Why do you need it? Oh, we got a budget for a new firewall. What does that do for you? Why do you need that? Is there something wrong with your existing one? What are you trying to protect? What? And, and let's let's be honest, right? If someone's trying to rob the bank, do you think they go through the front door? No, they never do. And that brings the question: like, do, do, there our industry. Do you think there's an over reliance on tools? <laughs> I, I do. I want to. I'm, I'm going to answer that one for myself. I think there's a huge over-reliance on tools. I think everybody wants to buy a tool of some kind. They, they love I, I say this. I say this to investors and venture capital firms and, and PE firms all the time. Everybody wants to, to buy a product. Everybody wants to invest in a product, right? And, you know, and I'm not going to name names of products. We have way too many products. I, one of my past companies, I won't mention names, I, we, we did a mapping of all of the capabilities we had in our organization. And, and we did an analysis of how much value each of those capabilities was bringing and we were generating and deriving from it. And it, the truth is we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of capabilities and we were deriving a fraction of the value from each. Well, The problem is not a tool problem. We know very few of us have tool problems. Most of us have process, technical debt, shadow IT problems. Right, like that's where the problems typically are. Well, you Christmas came early for us because that that was the answer I was <laughs> I was actually looking for. I was a little self-serving uh, with that question, but it, you're absolutely correct. The process, if you if you have engineered the process, and I think one of the things areas is taking into account your user base. The the employees, team members that you have are probably the biggest cybersecurity asset a firm has. Without and they are rare, they're rarely brought into the process. I mean, their exposure to cyber is phishing training. Okay. Right. And we almost say we almost say that the, the user is the biggest liability, right? You hear that That's sometimes right. in this. You hear that industry. you hear, but then what are we doing to actually change that user? or help that user. A part of our vision at Federated Security at Google, and, and I love this, I can't take ownership of this. This was something the team developed, not me. It's, it's almost like a neighborhood watch concept, right? Yes, would we love to have policemen on every corner 
making sure that the company is secure. Yeah. Is that realistic? No. I, I almost liken it to having Nest cameras all around the neighborhood, right? Like, and no, we don't own them. They belong to the, the, the neighbors. <laughs> but um, they help keep the neighborhood safe because we work together. That's uh, it's a great analogy. And uh, neighborhood watch, you know, right? Together we yeah, we're better toge together. Together you can. Better We've together. seen in that better together approach, we have we see it come together when the end users are actually uh, educated on the why. So everybody says, "Don't click on this email," or "Don't do this," yeah. or make sure your computer is closed or logged out as soon as you leave it if you're in a public place there's a lot of don't don't do your banking at starbucks right there's <laughs> there, but nobody bothers to tell them why if if they understood the why then people i i found th there's always exceptions but by and large people are very reasonable and once they understand the why they don't want to be a part of the problem. They all want to be a part of the solution. And you, you see know, a change goes, in behavior. Agreed. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, right? Effortless comprehension. If you can communicate a technical concept effortless, in a way that can be comprehended effortlessly, you all of a sudden turn, you know, and, 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 and um, you, turn, you turn somebody that is otherwise a liability into an asset, right? to your organization and to the security of your space. It just takes time and focus and energy, Manoj. You have to care enough about them to want to partner with them and make their their realities, um, to, to, to understand their reality and bring security to them, if that makes sense, which is strangely connected to what we were talking about, about getting more people into cyber, right? You, you can't expect them to come to you. You have to go to them. And when you do that, all of a sudden your enterprise now is filled with uh, amazing people that help you make the company more secure as opposed to hurt you. You know, I, I had a professor in uh, college. He was a great guy. Uh, and he always used to uh, tell us that, you know, if, if you can just illuminate the path, that's it. Your job is to show what is possible as an engineer. Mm. And then the, so my background is aerospace, but it was illuminate what is possible. Mm. And if you illuminate what is possible, then whether someone decides to traverse that path or go forward or not is going to be based on a whole bunch of different things. But at least you have shown the possibility. And once the possibility is out there, it becomes an eventuality at some point. And uh, makes, I, I think yeah. I, I thought he was spot on uh, with that. Agreed. Look, I think cybersecurity used to be about technology and hacking and all of those things. And it's rapidly transforming into um, empathy and um, learning and understanding your user, understanding your consumer understanding their needs and shaping your world to meet those needs. Since you use the word empathy, I got to bring COVID-19 into the, of course, <laughs> into the con into the conversation. Um, how do you think COVID-19 has changed our industry in cybersecurity? <laughs> That's a loaded question. I know it's a very so, loaded question. Um, it's a great one though. Um, I think one thing that it's taught us is that you cannot build walls and moats. Walls and moats are not enough to keep your organization secure. Uh, back in my, one of my old organizations, I used to coin a phrase saying, identity is the new perimeter, right? Your firewalls, your VPNs, even some of the more advanced versions, right? Uh, Proxy-based capabilities. Um, Ultimately, being able to understand who someone is, understanding how to fingerprint their regularity of interacting with your infrastructure, and being able to validate what they are and who they are is, is the only way for us to um, 
improve our ability to secure at scale and then from a remote stance the way we are today. Because any kind of, any dream we had of being able to build walls and moats around our environments is now gone because of COVID-19, because we've all been home for a year at least. So you think it, this has brought us out of the dark ages when we used to love moats and, and walls <laughs> and, and maybe back into the 21st century. And, and what you mentioned about identity, do you think uh, we need to put uh, some kind of a system in place that is a standard, if you will, across the industry that can allow you to federate an identity across anything you want? You know, I, I think that's a great idea. And I think that would make life simpler for not only our software engineering friends, but potentially our, our, our users and our, our partners in the user space as well. Um, I do think there's beauty in having options and choices. This is America. That's not a bad thing. Um, but I think interoperation is, is the goal. So you said unified and federate, right? Um, when we talk about federation at Google, yeah, we mean, it doesn't mean that you have one and not the other. It means you have both but that they can work together. And so to me, uh, the point that, that stands out that you just made is it's not necessarily that there's one way to do it. It's that all of the ways can function together in as seamless yes. possible, a seamless way as possible. I, I would, I would hope so. And, and I think, you know, uh, from an identity perspective, I think our federal systems have to come into the modern age as well. I, you know, True. when we look at, when we look at what happened with Experian or we look at your medical records getting stolen, your social security number is plastered all over the place. Right now, the end user is the most vulnerable, the, the end citizen. They have no way to change their social security number. The law has no mechanism to make that happen. You know, you can change your driver's license number, but you can't change your social security number. And that the damn thing follows you everywhere you go. It, it, it's created a vulnerability because of an antiquated way of operating that can easily be resolved uh, if, as a nation, we actually have the political will to do something about it. But I'm picking on that as an example. But I, I don't no, know if you it's have It's not a bad example. It. It's not a bad example. Yeah. I think, look, as a society, we're still adapting to what it means to be in the digital age, um, especially here in America. Um, a lot of countries that are smaller and, and maybe their infrastructure is a little bit less developed, they skip some steps. And that's not a bad thing, right? Digital passports, digital identity cards, like all of these different things. Um, they don't come without challenges, but they're important. Um, and I think we'll get there with time. Um, but you're right. I think investment in um, maturity of what it means to be a digital citizen in the United States is, is a... Um, important area of investment for our government and beyond. I absolutely couldn't agree more. I know we're coming up on the hour here. I, I want to get it does. There, there's so many more questions I have, but we won't be. Maybe you'll be kind enough to honor us with your presence again and, and we can do like a part two and part three maybe uh, on this. But there was one Glad thing to. I read on your uh, on your LinkedIn profile. Uh, about philanthropy and church. And, and I'm just curious yeah. about your thoughts on the role of spirituality in advancing one's career and, and just being a good person, if you will. Manoj, I love the question. And I know so many people who try to separate this and that's not really who I am. So if you look at my tagline, it says, do good, serve people, change the world. Yeah. I believe that's yep. what it says. And, and I think, foundationally as, a, as what I like to call myself a servant leader, I wake up every morning excited about the ability to hopefully make this world a better place, um, to do right by people um, and, and to care about people and to serve. And I think foundationally, right? I mean, to, to go you know, a little bit more on the religious angle, right? I think Jesus does represent an ultimate example of a person who served selflessly um, but that you don't have to be a Christian to, to live that way. Um, I think service to others, service uh, to something greater than yourself and, and being able to think from a, a growth mindset versus a, a loss mindset is a huge part of the way we build teams and a huge part of the success I've had throughout my career. So I don't think they can be separated. I put that there on purpose because it's a key part of who I am and it's not something I'm ashamed of. And 
serving people um, is a lifestyle, not just a philosophy. It's not just something you claim to do. If you do that, good things will happen. There is absolutely no debate about any of that. And I, I'm so glad that you have the courage to actually come out and and just state it. Uh, of a lot of times, of course, um, it, it might be on folks' minds, but it's never brought out in a professional setting. And I, I think that's that's valuable. It gives life meaning, if you will. Manoj, I, this is what I'd say to others who are thinking about this. Be who you are, right? Like I have no expectation for people to be what I am. I do expect them to be good people and to care and to serve and to love the world. I expect that, to love others um, appropriately, of course, but um, be who you are. I think in our environment, in cyber, in our in professional settings, we're so afraid to be who we are and that if we could get over that hump, the world would be a better place. So let me ask you this. Is there any... Uh books in the works, any talks you'll be doing? Is there anything you want to plug in the organization you'd like to speak about as uh, that we can put into the show notes here towards the end? Absolutely. There's a couple. One is called Share the Mic in Cyber. Hashtag Share the Mic in Cyber. It's run okay. by a good friend of mine by the name of Camille Stewart, uh, okay. along with some other amazing, amazing people focused on um, highlighting the efforts of um, not just black security practitioners, but women right now in particular, and partnering these folks um, with um, uh, allies in, in the industry. So that's one. Two, um, ICMCP, the International Consortium of Minority Cybersecurity Professionals, uh, another fantastic asset for early to mid-career professionals hoping to break, to the, break into the next level. Um, and then finally, look, I have, uh, you know, there's some really interesting things on the horizon in the context of empathetic leadership, empathetic engineering. Um, I won't mention names. We like to walk in silence, but uh, we're excited about what the future has uh, in a couple of these areas. So more, more to come. Follow me on uh, at Rob Duhart on Twitter and uh, you, you'll catch a little bit more. Um, in this when we catch some of those announcements, please come back on the show and, and uh, enlighten us about them. Of course, my pleasure. Right. And, and, um, the more the merrier, my nose. This has been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Rob, so much for joining us. Absolutely. Having a wonderful day. Thanks for having me on the show. Look forward Thank to the you. next time. Thank you.